0: Okay, second Samuel chapter 7. If you turn there with me. And as you're turning to second Samuel chapter 7 as we continue our journey through second Samuel together, one of the things I would encourage you to ponder as we look at this chapter together this evening, sort of a an overall idea or concept is that could it be possible in your life that Maybe what your idea is or your plan or maybe your concept of what would be a really great and an incredible thing that God might do in your life or through your life or allow to come to pass, perhaps what if it was possible that actually your idea is way too small. And maybe God has a way bigger idea, a way grander vision and something far more marvelous than you would have ever imagined. You know, the Bible does tell us in the book of Ephesians that God uh, works in us and it says he does, you know, exceedingly abundantly above and beyond what we could ask or think through his power working through our lives. And sometimes our problem isn't that we perhaps are thinking, well, it'd be really great if God could just do this. And, and, and we would almost be content with that, but perhaps it could be that that idea is not right because maybe God has something far better. Maybe God has something much beyond what you could even envision that would be way better as a part of his plan and purpose. And I think this chapter is kind of one of those chapters in the Bible that really conveys that idea. Second Samuel chapter 7 is an important chapter to us, particularly from a doctrinal perspective, because it gives to us what we often refer as the Davidic Covenant. Uh, and by the Davidic Covenant, what we mean is this is the place where God, by his Spirit, Prophetically reveals to David, King David, that the Messiah, the Savior, Jesus Christ, was going to come through the lineage, through the family line of David. Uh, The Bible tells us prior to this time that Jesus, the Messiah, would come uh, from, first of all, the seed of man, and then that he would come through the Jewish people. And then that he would come through the tribe of Judah. And now God refines it once again. And he says, particularly, not just the tribe of Judah, but through the, the family line of David himself. That through that lineage, they could trace to verify who the Messiah would be. And of course, we have other prophecies that just give us further details. Many of them that pertain to even this time of year as we celebrate Christmas. Micah chapter five tells us that Jesus specifically born in Bethlehem. And we have these Prophecies given to us throughout the word of God. But again, 2 Samuel 7. This is the Davidic covenant where David gets this awareness that he actually would have the privilege to have the Messiah, Jesus Christ, come through his family line. So let's look at it together. At this time, again, remember, David has moved his capital to Jerusalem. He's now reigning over the consolidated nation of Israel. All the tribes are now submitted to him as their new king. David, we saw last week, has now moved the Ark of God to the center of the nation to the capital city Jerusalem again having this heart under his administration prior uh, to the previous administration uh, and governmental leader who had quite frankly, no interest in the things of God or having God at the center of the nation. David's heart is different. David wants to bring God back to the center of the nation. And so he's brought the Ark of the Lord, that central piece of the furnishings of the tabernacle where the presence of God would be manifest back into the center of the nation at the capital city. And we read chapter seven, verse one. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, And the Lord had given him rest from his enemies all around that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. So at some point after David has settled into Jerusalem, again, we're reminded here of David having his own house or more than a house, what we would refer to as a palace for a king, a cedar palace. We saw that in our prior chapters as well, uh, that David's fame was expanding, that the Lord had established him, that actually people from other nations came and blessed David with offerings of of cedar wood and, and precious materials and built him this grand palace. Palace there as the king. Uh, And at this time, as David is now in his palace, so he's comfortable himself, as well as the Bible tells us here, verse 1, that this was a time that the Lord had given him rest from his enemies all around. So there's been a cessation of battles and warfare and again for a period of time there was a lot of conflict David was fighting battles, so this comes at a time now the Bible's trying to tell us when things were rather calm things were peaceful David had settled into a season where he's now on the throne that time of struggling and the time of challenges that David had been through in the prior season that's come to a rest now David's not in a time of struggle and hardship. He's come to kind of a calm season in his life. Things are settling down a little bit. Uh, His enemies that were hassling him and causing him constant conflict and the battles he was always fighting, that's come to a closure now. And the Lord, it says, has given him rest at this time in his life. And and please take note of this. It says there, verse 1, the Lord had given him rest. And I want to tell you something. It is the Lord alone, honestly, that can give to any one of us rest. And no matter what way you want to define that, uh, all the way to the point of, to the most basic way the Bible tells us in the book of Psalms that he gives his beloved sleep. Uh, God is the one who gives us rest, whether it's to our physical body. Lord, I can't sleep. Well, the Bible says the the Lord can give to his beloved sleep sleep and that he does in fact you remember in the book of genesis uh, god showed that very clearly god without anesthesia put adam to sleep and took out a part of adam's side it says he put the man into a deep sleep and then he took his portion of his side and made the woman out of the man Uh, and again god was able to do that and so when i have trouble sleeping sometimes i just remind the lord of that uh lord you uh, did it i'm not asking you to operate on me while i'm sleeping god i already got a woman laying here next to me i'm content with that 23 years plus and this is more sufficient uh but god is able to give us rest and in the same way the bible is very clear that god can give us rest circumstantially he can bring a calm and a peacefulness and a time of rest when we need it to our circumstances again maybe we've gone through a season that it's been hard and there's been a lot of challenges and struggles and Battles that we've been enduring and we've been facing different enemies and things that are causing constant conflict. Seems like we're always fighting off this enemy in our flesh or dealing with the next battle financially or some situation or problems at work. The wonderful thing is the Lord alone is the one who can bring a time of rest and and it caused things to settle down he's able to speak calm to things remember jesus when he was with his disciples there on the sea of galilee and the storm brewed up and all jesus had to do remember was to speak to the storm he said peace be still literally it's be muzzled in the greek and instantly everything went calm and the lord's able to do that at any given time as well as most importantly he's able to give us rest for our soul jesus said in matthew 11 come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and i will give you rest and he was talking there he says about a rest for our soul that we can rest regarding our relationship with god that we don't have to strive and work and think we have to maintain god's approval or keep in good graces with god but that jesus says listen i am your rest I've done the work. You don't have to work at doing anything. Just receive my love and receive my forgiveness and know that you are in good graces with God by my presence as your Savior and Lord in your life. And we can have a rest for our soul and we don't have to be worried and anxious and and, and torn up inside. And here, just a beautiful picture as the Lord has now given David rest from all his enemies. And it's in this time of peace now that David... Knowing he's been established by the Lord, he knows God's given him this prominence, that God has blessed his life and done these wonderful works in his life and exalted him now to the place of the kingdom, that David, in this time, wants to use his place of influence for God. And rather than just selfishly indulge himself and kick back and say, hey man, this is great, i got a palace. And I got no battles going on and things are going good and and God's kind of helped bring a calm to my life and life's not too bad now. And sometimes God is gracious to us like that and unfortunately the mistake we make sometimes is we want to kick back and put life in neutral spiritually and just kind of coast along or worse yet, we get like the individual Jesus spoke about in the Gospels who said, man, God's really blessed and this is a good season and I'm prospering and, and, and this is well, man, I better tear down and build bigger barns uh, so I can get more stuff and, and get more prosperous and more comfortable. Instead, David's mind in a time of rest and peace turns towards gratitude. And David says, you know what? God's blessed me. He's prospered me. He's been good to me. Now I want to use my influence for God's purposes. And so David here, you can see this, his mind shifts towards the Lord and his love for the Lord and his desire to honor God produces this idea we see that comes to pass in verse two into David's mind where David, it says, apparently is looking out someday from his palace area and he recognizes, man, here I am in this cedar palace, God's blessed me, I'm a king, and I have this cedar palace, this gorgeous, magnificent place to dwell in. And then he looks out to where the ark of God was that he had brought back to Jerusalem, and he recognizes the ark of God is dwelling basically in a, a tent-like structure, in the, the curtains there of, of the tabernacle that was set up for it to be dwelling in. And David, David just finds that inconsistent. And it begins to seem almost like great on him. It's bothering him. He's wrestling within and he's kind of thinking, man, this is so inconsistent. I mean, I'm a human king and I got a cedar palace and a gorgeous dwelling place and God is the king of kings and he's out there in a tent. And this just it's bothering David and something his—I kind of just shows you where his heart is at. Again, whether his reasoning is 100 percent accurate in regards to the fact that poor old God's actually dwelling out there in a tent kind of mindset. But this just shows you where his heart is. He loves the Lord and he can't fathom the thought that that, that how could I possibly deserve anything close to what God deserves? And certainly God deserves way better. David's mind is God deserves way better than I do. And if this is what I have, God deserves way more than this. He's so much more glorious of a king. So it's with that mindset that this desire idea comes into David's mind that he wants to build a palace, if you would, a temple, a structure, something, a beautiful dwelling place. Ultimately, we know it will be the temple itself, the permanent dwelling place where God's people would gather to worship, he wants to build a house and a dwelling place that's glorious for God now. So it seems that he goes to Nathan the prophet and he wants to float this idea by him, which again, I think is a very beautiful thing because David has this idea and desire, which is, again, keep in mind as we go through this, this is a good desire. It's a wonderful desire. And ultimately, this idea and desire is consistent with God's plan long-term because ultimately God will build A temple. It will be through Solomon, we know that. But this is what God's ultimate plan is. So, this is a beautiful thing, wonderful intention. David's love for God, he wants to honor God, but he wants to see is this desire something that's in line with God's will? And I think that's why verse 2 tells us that he went to Nathan the prophet and brought this subject up before him. In a sense, that's what he's saying when he says, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. In other words, he's saying, uh, implying this isn't right I should build God a glorious house now the reason it goes in Nathan this is the first time Nathan shows up for us here Nathan is the prophet of God that we'll see becomes sort of like a chief advisor to David during his administration as the king There'll be others there as well, but Nathan seems to always be by David's side and sort of be, as I said, like an advisor, really one of his chief advisors, especially, particularly in regards to all matters that dealt with morality and spiritual things. We're going to see that it's Nathan the prophet that rebukes David in a few chapters regarding his sin, his wrongdoing with Bathsheba. But I like this picture here of of King David. I I like this political attitude and mindset. He's putting godly men around him as his advisors and saying, you know what? I'm a king, but boy, my administration, my decision-making, my rulership will go way better if I bring around me some people who are godly some prophets of God who can speak into my life the things of God that hear from God and can keep me in check and speak to me words of wisdom that would be helpful from God. So we see Nathan by David's side and as this idea is brought to Nathan, Nathan verse 3 responds to David understanding what David's speaking about, about building God a house and he simply says to David sort of just speaking off the top of his head we'll see go he says do all that's in your heart for the lord is with you so nathan hears this and he can't see one reason why god wouldn't be honored by something like that and again p- put yourself into Nathan's sandals here a minute of course we're going to see that he's ultimately a little bit off target and he has to go back and and reclarify god's will to david but nathan the prophet hears this and he thinks well, I mean, th- this is wonderful. Things are going in a fantastic direction. David's brought the ark of God back. We're being open to the presence of God again at the center of the nation. And he's thinking, it seems the Lord is with you, David, in everything you're doing. Hey, if he's put that in your heart, go for it, man. If that's what God's put on your heart and mind, you're the king. You have the resources, the power to do it. That sounds like a grand idea. I don't see why God wouldn't be blessed by that, why God wouldn't be honored by that. So he sort of encourages David and indicates that the Lord would, would be pleased with that. And he kind of prompts David with the idea that, hey, that, I'm telling you as your spiritual advisor, that sounds like something that's of the Lord. Now, the unfortunate thing here we're going to see is Nathan's error is he speaks from only what he's looking at from the natural perspective. He doesn't pause to take time to truly seek the Lord and he lets what he sees on the surface and he lets his own human reasoning dictate what he says in the moment instead of waiting to seek God for revelation or confirmation. This sounds like a really great idea. This sounds like a really good idea. Let me go further. This sounds like a really godly idea in line with God's will. But yet we're going to see that Nathan finds out that he should not have encouraged David to just go ahead and do this because really this we're going to see is not really what God wanted David to do. God had a different plan in mind. And so Nathan here makes this mistake and you know sometimes we have to be careful whether we're the individual that hears something that somebody's saying and sometimes man, we, we want to be encouraging or we hear something really good. And, and quite frankly, uh, you know, it's sometimes few and far between. We hear somebody really wants to do something great for God. So as soon as we hear one person say they want to do something for God, hey, finally, finally somebody wants to do something for God. Finally, one young person wants to live for Jesus. You know, go for it. Or I mean, just go, go to Africa, go on a mission field. Nobody else wants to. And sometimes we hear these really wonderful ideas and our hearts are stirred and we say, hey, do what's in your heart. I can't see how God wouldn't be pleased with that or honored by that. We need more missionaries or, or and we tell somebody just go, or, my, my golly, I mean, that, that's that's a fantastic opportunity. Step into that and we encourage someone to do something and we have to be careful because, If that's truly not what the Lord wants for them, in good intention, we can actually misguide someone. And we may be a very credible person in their life, someone they look up to, they admire. So we have to use caution and, and be careful. We have all probably been guilty of doing this kind of thing before. This is why it's important on the other side of this that we all learn to listen to the Lord. The Bible says there's safety found in a multitude of counselors that by counsel plans are established so we should get counsel the things of the lord are yes and amen you should seek out godly counsel it's wise it's one of the ways that god bears witness to his will in our lives whenever i'm making a decision especially a more major decision beyond praying and seeking the word and evaluating circumstances i i seek counsel i look for other people to to bear witness that their spirit kind of has a, a confirmation and agreement so i'm not dismissing that But that being said, there are going to be times where people want to amen something that God's not amening. And we have to be cautious and be careful and learn how to hear from God for ourselves above everything else and, and and it's very, very important because we could err on both sides of this the side of Nathan, where we misguide someone and we need to go back and apologize and you know kind of give them clarification if we made a mistake and at the same token, we can just take what we hear from someone else and just run with something because somebody kind of confirmed it and thinks it's a great idea, and we run forward with enthusiasm and can step. Uh, sort of ahead of the lord or get into something maybe that we shouldn't so verse four it says but it happened that night uh-oh should have happened that day but he didn't wait that long it happened that night the word of the lord came to nathan so later that evening when he's eating dinner or he's you know laying in bed at night all of a sudden god kind of knocks on nathan's heart this he says, nathan uh that conversation earlier not a good idea I mean I know that really sounded grand what David proposed but actually Nathan that's not what my intention is for David and he's going to have to correct Nathan here and Nathan now is going to in humility have to go back and deliver the word of the Lord to David which shows you what did he give to David prior to this he gave him the word of man it wasn't the word of the Lord and see listen I, I don't care if somebody is the most famous prophet of god i don't care if they're really at uh, the best of men are men at best okay and, and, and i don't care how acumen but that person i mean they're like so prophetic they always speak into my life well maybe 90 percent of the time they do but what if the one time they speak into your life and they give you the word of man the word of their flesh and not the word of the lord that can be And here. So he, he gives him the word of man. Now he receives the word of the Lord, which is, Nathan, that's not what I want David to do. You need to go tell David what I really think in regards to this. So he's now sent with the word of the Lord back to David, verse 5, go and tell my servant David. Notice God's not upset with David. He, he, he appreciates David. He refers to him multiple times throughout this, my servant. That's my servant. It blesses me what's in his heart. But you need to go tell him. Basically, what God's going to do here is God is going to respectfully decline David's offer. David, thanks, but no thanks. Appreciate that you had it in your heart. We're going to see that in the other accounts and chronicles. God's going to specifically say, it was good that you had this in your heart, David. Nothing wrong with it. You're rewarded for the desire, great desire but not something I want you to actually engage in because Solomon will be the one chosen by God to build the temple. So go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in tents and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, Have I ever spoken a word, God says, to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So the first thing that God does is he's sort of respectfully declining David's offer to build him a temple here, to build him a house. As God assures David, this is what's happening in verse 5 to 7, God is assuring David here that that he's, he's not feeling deprived it's kind of some, somewhat almost humorous that God would have to tell David that he's saying really David it's, it's not hurting my feelings that nobody's built me a house yet David uh, even though human beings may need a palace I'm really okay with the tent thing like like it's what you perceive as very important from your perspective sometimes again the Bible tells us that God doesn't see as men see and, and, and a lot of times what we value and esteem uh, God doesn't quite value and esteem the same way with the same system. Again, I've said before, I'll say it again because I think it applies here. In heaven, the Bible says that that the, the street is is paved with gold. Now, we just think that's to make it beautiful. I I personally tend to think that what that's an indication is that's God's estimation and value of gold. Uh, I mean, w- w- go out there, what do we pave our streets with? Asphalt, right? Blacktop. Do you ever see anybody out there going, "Wow, check out that blacktop on Tilton Road"? Whoa, that is some sweet blacktop, right? It's blacktop, and and from God's perspective, He says that's about how important gold is to me. I paved the streets with it in heaven. I don't cherish it the way men do. It's not as big of a deal to me. And and God has such an overabundance of so God says here, David, listen. Great that you had it in your heart, but he says all the time through history up to this point in the season so far that God has been manifesting himself and dwelling among the people since the day, he says, verse 6, that I brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. He says, I've always moved about in a tent or a tabernacle. That was necessary because they were a mobile people as God was leading them around through the wilderness. They were journeying around like pilgrims, so they needed to utilize a tent so they could set up the tabernacle and then tear it back down and move it to the next location. And so this was a thing of necessity for that season. And it wasn't something that God felt deprived over or offended by not having a permanent dwelling place or a house. He says, David, all the time that there have been different leaders, I've I've never reproved or expressed concern to anyone that I called to shepherd my people saying, hey, wait a minute, why have you not built me a house of cedar? I mean, how can you keep set me up in a 10. I mean, don't I deserve something a little nicer? So he's just reminding David, God is not in need of or concerned with the things that people often are. God was able to work in the way that he wished prior in the season when he was in the way that he was doing it. And again, such an important thing for us to always remember that we never want to relate to God like, like, like we relate to people. God doesn't have the needs that people have God doesn't always work in the same ways that people do. And and we have these perspectives and viewpoints of what matters and is important. And again, to me, it's very interesting as well. In this whole passage, and it's a much, in many ways, a representation of us, there's there's this focus and think of, there needs to be this physical thing and this physical structure. And the reality is God saying, I'm not quite as concerned about the physical as I am the spiritual. And the ministry of my spirit. And the ministry of my spirit has been happening fine in a tent, God says. It's been working really well that way. And the way I've been working has been more than sufficient. And God's highest concern is what's happening in regards to the work and ministry of his spirit as long as that is not being restrained, then God is not feeling deprived in regards to how things are happening or what you know, is available on the material, physical aspect of things. He then goes on, verse 8, to say, Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, going on with the message, thus says the Lord of hosts. He says, David, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone. And have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who were on the earth. So now God begins to remind David of all that he's accomplished in David's life. He he sort of asked David, David, stop, recall everything that I've done in your life. He reminds David there in verse 8 how he had taken him from the sheepfold, from being a shepherd, to ultimately making him the ruler over the people of Israel, from the place of being a shepherd to being a king. Now, in that culture, you have to understand, the the role of a shepherd was about one of the lowest statuses in life in that society. Now, I don't know what that would equate to today, and it'd probably be better that I don't try and guess, because I'll probably hurt somebody's feelings in the room. (laughs) But in that day, being a shepherd was like the lowest of the low. And so he went from being the lowest of the low in society to being the king of Israel. God took him from the lowest possible point in life and made him the highest possible position that he could ever have imagined. And, and that was all the work of God's grace. Because quite frankly, the reality is that had nothing to do with David's doing. It was about the most least likely individual, a shepherd, To ever become a king no one would have ever thought that a shepherd could actually somehow become a king someday that that just seemed like an impossibility but listen when god gets involved that's the kind of stuff that god can do And, and quite frankly the bible tells us in the new testament that we spiritually are are priests and kings unto our god that god has given to us a, a elevated status as king's kids and and quite honestly many of us at one point in our life were in a rather low place a very low place and we were probably individuals who whether we thought about ourselves that way or others looked and said that is the least likely individual for something decent to turn out of their life That is the least likely individual that something decent or, or or that they, they, and, and all of a sudden, what does God do? He takes us from the lowest of the low and by a work of his grace, I mean, he does something phenomenal in us. And he elevates us to the most incredible place and brings us out of the miry clay in the pit and brings us to this beautiful place where he elevates us and brings such blessing to our life. And again, why was it all happening? Because of a work of God's grace. That's what verse 9 says. He says, David, I have been with you wherever you've gone. I've been the one cutting off your enemies and dealing with your things in your life that were threatening your success and would have held you back or destroyed you. And I like that statement there. He says to David, David, I have been with you wherever you have gone. It was the Lord's presence and the Lord's help that caused David to always experience what he did and it was the Lord's availability in his life no matter where he was. David, I've been with you wherever you have gone. And have we not, ladies and gentlemen, discovered that reality in our lives if we know the Lord? That he, not always people, Because people fail us, they forsake us, people choose to go a different direction, and honestly, sometimes, just reality, literally, people can't always be with us 24-7. But the presence of the Lord can. And the Lord says, I have been with you wherever you have gone. Wherever you were, and wherever you've gone, or wherever place you were taken to... I remained with you I was there I was available to help you and and what a wonderful thing to know that that he never leaves us or forsakes us that his constant presence is available to us and that's what helps us to overcome the difficulties the challenges to experience God's best and highest ideal he then says verse 10 to David going on moreover I will point a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more nor shall the sons of wickedness suppress them anymore as previously since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. So here in verse 10 and 11, the Lord now does give David revelation and he informs David, listen, what is in your mind is ultimately in accordance with my plan. Because he says right there specifically to David, verse 10, I will, I'm going to, he says, David, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. And what God's referring to there is Jerusalem. And that the temple would be built in Jerusalem. That would be the chosen place. Again, let me say something very candidly. God chose Jerusalem. As a special place for the Jewish people. God chose that. God says, I will appoint a place. Jerusalem. I will choose that place. I will appoint that place. And it's in that place that God designated that the temple, the physical permanent dwelling place the the structure where the temple was where the presence of god was manifest and his people assembled to worship him the temple would be built there in jerusalem they would no longer then move around like the tabernacle setting up and tearing down and he says david this is something i'm going to do but he's informing david that his plan included him doing it in his time he says i will appoint the place david This is going to happen, but he says, David, I'm the one that's going to be superintending the process. I'm the one that's going to choose to do it in my time, in my way, in accordance with my purpose and plan. And he's just indicating to David, listen, your heart's on the right track, but David, you don't get to call the shots because you're not God. And he says, David, listen, let me do what I'm going to do in my time. Don't try and force my plan. Don't try and speed it up. Don't try and take matters into your hand. He says, look, let me appoint what I want to happen, when I want it to happen, how I want it to happen at the time and the place that it's supposed to come to pass. And he says, be patient, David. And that's a very difficult thing for, for any of us, of course, to hear in regards to God's plans and purposes. And then he says to him, the end of verse 11 there, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. So what God's going to say to David here is, listen, David, you want to build me a house? That's really, really glorious. But David, what you don't realize is I want to build you a house. You think that you want to do something for me. David, the reality is I want to do something far greater for you. I want to build you a house and not just a physical house. The term there literally speaks of a dynasty. He's referring to the fact, as we'll see, David, I want to build you a dynasty, a royal dynasty where through your lineage Not just your sons would continue to reign, but ultimately the king of kings will reign forever, Jesus Christ upon the throne. Look what he says, verse 12. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, succession of David's line on the throne, who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom, a a permanent kingdom from the line of David. He, verse 13, shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom, notice terms, forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you and your throne shall be established forever. And according to all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. So notice, God is informing David now through this prophecy, as I said, of what is going to come to pass through his family line. And what we have here, as we begin to again, begin to receive prophecies in the scripture, and of course as we move further in the Old Testament, we'll start to move into the prophetic books, and a very important thing, what we have in this prophecy here is what we call a near and far fulfillment. There's a part of this prophecy that that is a near and literal fulfillment. And, of course, that's a reference to Solomon. And we know that as we go on further. As God says to David here, listen, David, someone from your own seed from your body i'm going to establish him on the throne continually and verse 13 he shall build a house for my name they're talking about a literal house a physical dwelling place god would ultimately inform david that his son solomon was the one god chose and appointed to build the temple of the lord because david was a man of war and he had been involved in much bloodshed and god's a god of peace So it would be inconsistent with God, a God of peace, to have a man of war to build the temple. So David, as informed by God, ultimately, David, listen, it's good that it's in your heart, but but I'm going to use your son Solomon to fulfill what's in your heart to do. You may have the vision for it, David, and that's great. And David did everything he could to get behind it and supply it. But he says, David, though you have the desire and the vision for it, I'm actually going to use someone else to do it. And his son Solomon is the one selected. So certainly what's being referred to here is a direct and literal near reference to Solomon. But you can tell there are inferences here to something way beyond Solomon. Because God is telling David here, I'm going to establish this person who's the seed of your house, one of your sons in the lineage of your family line. And I'm going to establish, it says, the throne of his kingdom forever your house and your kingdom he says verse 16 shall be established forever before you and your throne shall be established forever perpetually eternally and of course there he's referring to the fact that the messiah was going to come through david's family line david knew exactly what was being told him here that's why he has the response he does in the next verses he's realizing that he is being informed that the messiah the deliverer of israel our Savior, Jesus Christ, was going to come through his family line, that he had been privileged to have that come from his family line. And so David is recognizing now here that God had a much bigger plan to build David a house perpetually, eternally, as Jesus, the son of David, would be the one who reigns on David's throne forever. Now that's important because when we get to the New Testament... This, as well as Isaiah 9 and other places, the Bible clearly indicates that Jesus would come through the lineage of the family of David. And that he would have a reign that would last forever. He would sit on the throne of David that would reign forever. It's interesting that one of the most common titles used for Jesus, even in the New Testament, is Son of David. Because of this very reason, it was a way to identify that he truly was the Messiah according to prophetic scripture. So David's pursuit of wanting to serve the Lord, notice, and, 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 and do what would honor God, it leads now to further revelation, because he gets a revelation that literally blows his mind. And he can't believe what God's going to do. And let me just say something before we move on to David's response, and that's this. David, in essence, is being told no, right? I mean, let's not dismiss. God's being very kind about it. I mean, he's respectfully, graciously declining David's offer. But David's basically being told no. He wants to do something and God says, no, no David, that's not going to happen. But I want you to notice in this passage, if God does not allow something that we desire to come to pass, typically, that no is because God has something far greater and far better in store for us instead. And and listen, how many times... Lord, I, I mean, Lord... Can I marry this? I mean, this person will be wonderful. They'd be a great option for a spouse. They'd be a great option. And God says, no. And he closes the door and he gives us a no. Oh, Lord, but they would have been. it. And why is God saying no? To make you miserable? No. The reason God's saying no is because he has something far greater, someone far better That would be a way better match in person for you. So God says no to what you desire because his desire for you is way better. And he's got a way better individual that would be a spouse for you. Or God, we want to, you know, Lord, can I do this or take this opportunity or can I have this job or buy this house or, you know, have this ministry? And God closes the door. We get a no and we struggle with, you know, all the disappointment, the normal human experiences. Listen, we need to remember in those times, if we knew everything that God knew, we would recognize, Lord, thank you for saying no, because that means that you have something way better. You're thinking about something way more marvelous and bigger, like with David here. David, you're thinking way too small. David, why, why would you settle for just building me a house? David, I have something far better for you. And we need to remember that. Maybe recently God's told you no and closed the door. Listen, don't be discouraged. Wait, because perhaps in three weeks or three months or three years, you're going to get revelation that God has something far better in the same category he said no to but something far better that he wants to do. And that's why he's saying no, so his better plan can come to pass. So David, as he realizes these things, I mean, look at his response, verse 18. Then King David went in, it says, and sat before the Lord. And he said, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? So as David recognizes that God has just revealed this to him, his response in hearing the word of the Lord is to look at it. it. Says he just verse eighteen. He just goes in and he just sits in God's presence, and he just sits there in an attitude of worship and prayer. And he's just so overwhelmed as he's pondering here his own insignificance. He says, "Who am I, God, Lord? Who am I that you would do this with my life, Lord? That you would be so good to me? I, I amidst my faults and my failures? I don't deserve this." I mean, David's blown it quite a bit so far already, let's be very honest. I mean, he's already a grace case. (laughs) And he's saying, Lord, who am I that you'd be this good to me? That you'd want to bless me in this way? Lord, after what I've done and who I know that I am, Lord, who am I, he says, that you would do this for me that you've even brought me this far is is amazing enough and he's pondering his unworthiness and he's just sitting in the Lord's presence reflecting on that in an attitude of worship and let me tell you when the Lord reveals something to you or maybe he just begins to work in a way listen there's something really good sometimes to just go and sit in God's presence and to just ponder and to just pray it through and just worship God. I love this. David just goes and he sits in the presence of the Lord. And he goes on, verse 19, he says, And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God, and you have spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? Now what more can David say to you, for you, oh, for you, Lord God, know your Servant, so uh, David says, verse nineteen, Lord, what I, what I was thinking, seemed pretty amazing to me, and he says, verse nineteen, there, yet my idea was a small thing in your sight. This is back to what I was saying earlier. David had an idea, and he thought it was a really glorious idea and he realized after all the revelation came forth and god had a much more marvelous far-reaching bigger incredible plan that would bless him way more he says lord my idea boy my idea was such a small thing i was thinking so small god i was thinking well this would be good enough or i mean this would be sufficient And he's thinking wow lord thank you for helping me realize i was thinking way too small Thank you, Lord, that you're a really big God and you've got way bigger plans than I'm often envisioning because you're so much more loving and gracious and powerful that, Lord, you had this way more marvelous plan. He says, Lord, what I had in mind was such a small thing in your sight, but you've spoken of something much greater. And he says, verse 20, what more can I say to you, Lord? You, you know me. What more can I say? The idea is David's speechless. What more can I say? And let me tell you something. When you make David speechless, that's pretty powerful what's David he's a communicator right you read your book of Psalms who do you think wrote most of those things David had an expression for every range of emotion anger frustration depression anxiety feeling iso- David was a man of expression David is a communicator that's why he was such a wonderful psalmist and David here is so overwhelmed by the presence of the Lord that he says God I don't even know what to say and, and let me tell you something. Worship reaches its epitome when you just sit in God's presence and you don't even know what to say. And and the English language, the human language, and words just don't even work. And you just you're what a wonderful thing when when you come into a place where you just become so aware of how great God is. And how insignificant you are as a human being. And, and somehow God brings that revelation and reality to bear on your own soul. And David says, well, There's nothing to say, God. And he's just sitting there. In some ways worship reaches its highest pinnacle when words are no, no longer useful. And words don't even work. And something happens deep in the soul, deep calling unto deep. He says, verse 21, For your words' sake... Lord, and according to your own heart, notice this was what was on God's heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant known them. Therefore, verse 22, David knows it's not about him. Look at him. Therefore, verse 22, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, nor is there any God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. He says, Lord, you've done great things because you're a great God. And boy, would not all of us in some way if we were honest be able to look at that and to recognize in our life there are some really great things that God's done in our lives because He's a great God and He's done some really great things if we take the time to ponder and reflect and the Lord has a way to show us those things on occasion in our lives. Verse 23, He goes on, And who is like your people? Like Israel, the one nation, He says, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people. Again, take notice, God kind of likes the people of Israel. It might help in today's politics if people recognize that. The one nation, not America, not Russia, not none of the other Arab nations, none of the nations in the Orient, not Russia. The one nation, the Bible says, that God went to redeem For himself as a people, to make for himself a name and to do for yourself a great and awesome deeds for your land. God controls the land. He can give it to whoever he wants. And before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself. Again, God redeems them for himself, the nations and their gods. For you have made your people Israel, your very own people forever and you o oh lord have become their god again i don't see the bible saying that about any other people on the earth one people god one people it says that god has made his very own people forever and he has chosen to become their god something special and significant the chosen people of israel david recognizes this esteemed position God has given to them as a people group verse 25 this is now O Lord God the word which you've spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house establish it forever and do as you have said he's saying God fulfill your word you've spoken it do what you've said so let your name be magnified forever that's a great way to pray he's saying Lord don't do this so that my name gets more famous Lord, do it in a way where your name will be continuously magnified and exalted forever. That's true worship. That's healthy prayer and intercession. The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel. And let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant. Again, David realized this was a revelation from God. And how wonderful. Again, David calling himself some ten or more times, your servant, your servant, your servant. That's all God wants is for us to just be his servant. And the Bible says that the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. The Bible says the Lord doesn't do anything except he first reveals it to his servants, the prophets. God wants to reveal things. And there are times God wants to reveal things to you and to me in regards to his plans or what he wants to do. And he says, Lord, you've revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house Therefore, your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. Verse 28, And now, O Lord God, you are God. Your words are true. And you have promised this goodness to your servant. Look how he ends this. Verse 29, Now, therefore, let it please you to bless the house of your servant that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord God, have spoken it And with your blessing, let the house of your servant be blessed forever. Notice, David says it about five different ways and the beautiful way he has of articulating with his communication skills. But basically, can I summarize what David is saying is, Lord, do what you said. Lord, you promised it. This wasn't my idea. Lord, you said that you wanted to be good to me like this. Lord, you said that you wanted to bless my house. Lord, you said that you wanted to do these good things in my life. This is your word and your promise. God, I didn't make this up. It'd be blasphemous if I made it up. He says, God, this is is what you want to do because you're a good God and these are your promises from your word. So he's saying, Lord, honor your word in my life. I'm praying, God, keep your word. Fulfill your word. And bless me, he says, Lord. Bless me in such a way, he says, that it's with your blessing that the house of your servant be blessed forever. What an awesome thing to think that we can pray that way. It's not selfish to say, "Lord, bless me," if we're asking God to bless us in accordance with His will and His word, because He's the one glorified, and if He's given His promises and His word, listen, we can rely on them. So as God reveals things and speaks things, take His word to Him, Lord. You said it, right? You said it, Lord. It may not look, but You said this is true. And so, Lord, I take you at your word. Bless me. Bless your word. Fulfill your word in my life. Do what you said. And give God a chance to honor your faith as you ask in that way. Let's stand. Let's pray together.